This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Rob Strain, coming to us from Oakland, California. Working chronologically, Rob has done internships in Botswana, at NASA, and at a refugee camp in Philadelphia. He taught in the first grade at a Bay Area public school, served in multiple roles at Teach for America, Grip Tape, the Catalyst Fellowship, and at Transcend. Rob co-founded the Inspiration Project and is about to launch a rebranded consultancy called Lemon Battery, and that is just the half of it. I'm going to read several testimonials Rob has posted at his Lemon Battery website. Julka Omquist, Director of Research at Target, writes, There are so many things that are powerful about Rob, but he's so good at continuing to make things happen and masterful at synthesizing complex ideas. He's one of my favorite collaborators ever. Excellent execution, following things through, and creative, which is rare. Lauren Sherman, VP for Consumer Direct Marketing at Nike writes, incredibly organized and thoughtful in his approach. He creates an environment in which you can pull out the best from other people or melt things away that prevent great work or great outcomes. He helps you focus on the thing that matters. I think that's his superpower. Allison Kerr, a partner at Transcend, writes, Rob was able to bring out ideas I didn't even know I had. One of his biggest superpowers is this insane ability to generate ideas across different topics. Then he's able to take all that and synthesize so beautifully. He's got an ability to take complex, or unrelated information and make it user-friendly. Michelle Culver, co-founder of the TFA Reinvention Lab writes, when I wanted to create the Reinvention Lab, he was the first person I told out loud. Rob has held the pen for strategy and learning for us for three years. He's had such an outsized impact on our work. And finally, Elliot Whitney, CEO at Echo Learning writes, Rob knows how to pivot from thinking to doing. He's not satisfied if he has given advice. He's satisfied if he's made an impact. One of his gifts is his ability to build structures, systems, processes, experiences that are specifically tailored to an entity's desired outcomes. This will be Rob's first time as a guest on a podcast, which is pretty cool. The dude walks on the humble side of the street, so I am pleased to be able to shine a light on his work. And now, listeners, here's my conversation with Rob Strain. Rob. 
Rob Strain, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. So, Rob, one of the joys of being a podcast host is tracking down interesting information about guests. In <laughs> in Hawaiian, the term is kilo, as in intense observation or tracking of what's going on around you. And I suppose it's kind of what natural scientists do out in the field, right? So I spotted something about you in one of your descriptions of your of yourself on one of your websites. And in a moment of kilo, I learned that you are making bread at your place in Oakland, <laughs> California. So how is the bread making going? And what are you learning, Rob, as you do that? Because it's part of your learning curve, right? Oh my gosh, it's so good. I mean, I feel a little cliche in saying that I started making sourdough bread during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it was one of those things that I had, you know, <laughs> I love eating bread. I've always loved eating bread and always been just really taken by the kind of like romantic nature of, you know, nurturing this little starter of yours and like spending long periods of time creating these two loaves of bread. And for a while, I just didn't have the kind of schedule that let me do that. I was having a hard time finding multiple days I could even be home to do it. And then mm. suddenly, given this stretch of time where I was nothing but <laughs> but home, so a good friend let me borrow their sourdough starter and I gave it a go. And I think, you know, your question about what I'm learning, I'm learning a lot of things. I'm learning how important it is, especially in this kind of digital world for me to do things with my hands, like how grounding, like actual making mm -hmm. <laughs> has become for me. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that doing the exact same thing over and over again can have its own version of satisfaction and, and really thinking about all of these small details that make a real big difference on the bread, whether it's the water ratio or the salt. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I'm just like finding a ton of motivation and you know doing taking a new swing at it every every two weeks or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's super interesting because well, two things. First of all, sourdough actually we could do a whole a whole episode on this. You know, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about sourdough is you take a little bit of somebody else's mm -hmm. and then you add it to what you're doing and then it grows, right? So there's like yeah. this passing on, which is really neat. And then the other thing is. Something I haven't shared with you before is that I'm a graduate of the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco, mm. and this was back in 1979 to 1981. And my very first kitchen that I was in as a, as a chef trainee was the bread kitchen. And I remember this kind of crazy moment where the chef instructor started to teach us how to make bread, but really he gave about an hour's lecture on the chemistry and the biology and everything else that was happening, you know, the, the gluten and the way that the strands work together and so on. And I was just like, wow, you know, this is not just like here, you need the bread, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff involved in that. And I, I think yeah. maybe it's cliche, but actually that might've been an early moment where I was starting to think about what integrated learning is. Mm. I think that's really cool that you're doing that. So, yeah. and it's great that our listeners, you know, get to know that. And so kind of along the same lines, Rob, I want to do some other background stories as a way for our listeners to get to know you. So you shared with me that as a sophomore in high school, you told your parents you wanted to go to boarding school. And you, you also <laughs> shared with me that this ended up being both a rigorous learning experience and 
transformative in terms of what learning could feel like. So this mm. seems like one of those stories that needs a deeper dive. So what was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it usually does require a deeper dive when people hear about it. It seems like an odd little year sabbatical. Yeah, asking uh, to, to go to school. boarding school, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. to be technically accurate, my parents had met the headmaster of the boarding school. He was on the board of my little sister's school, mm. which I, had, I did not go to. And I don't know, I think we're pretty like taken by what he had to say about their learning philosophy and came home and kind of on a offhanded comment, we're like, you know, we saw this really interesting headmaster who seems to run this really cool school. Hmm. And I, I don't know, it captured my interest in a really deep way. And so I went online and I learned about it and I was past the application deadline and I reached out to the admissions office and asked if I could still submit one. Wow. And fast forward a couple of days, you know, later I'm having to explain to my parents that they need to drive me up to <laughs> the <laughs> northern tip of Maryland to have an interview at this boarding school. Hmm. And to their credit, I think they were, you know, just <laughs> very open to let me you know, explore down this route. I'm not not sure they actually thought I would want to go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, so, so I, I got in, I, I went, and it was one of those kind of crucible learning experiences for me. And I think on a lot of fronts, there's the kind of obvious boarding school giving you some independence and thinking about, you know, how do you start to form connections and an identity that's no longer connected to the place you live and your family and other things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. which I think was really interesting. The, you know, as you you mentioned, the actual academics, it was the first time really that I can remember that I got, I think I got a B minus on my first writing paper <laughs> and was, you know, just heartbroken to to see that. I was like, no, I, you know, I get A's. That's that's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I had this incredible conversation with the, you know, my English teacher at the time who said, like, sure, you know, you you're accurately describing, you know, the the thing that we read, but like, what's your thoughts about it? I don't I don't see anything that you're trying to like, you know, share or make meaning of from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, light bulb moments left and right to just be like, oh, that's that's what that's what learning is supposed to be about. Mm, And so yeah, I think it was in in many ways just really stretched me. I met some of the closest friends that I still have to today. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, came back after that year, largely driven, I think, by, you know, a desire to have a little bit more freedom, really. Like, Mm, I think it mm -hmm. was entirely kind of demanding and affirming community. And it was also very structured. It was, you know, you played a sport every season, you did study hall from six to eight. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a bit of an allergy to that. Mm. And so anyway, so, uh, you know, I I look back on it very, very fondly. And in many ways, do kind of harken back to just that experience as an anchor point for, Mm. you know, what felt really empowering as a, as a learner, what didn't. Right. I feel really grateful for that time. You know, where my mind went was that I, I'm understanding more and more through these interviews with guests, my own life, and that I think I may have been actually living two lives as a young kid, that I went to a traditional high school and had the very traditional education, which really bored the heck out of me. But I also was in a family of nine and that in a sense, I really was in boarding school for half of my life, (laughs) you know, like one half of the day and then the other half of the day. And that all the things that you just described were actually happening to me Mm -hmm. in that other half 
because we were tight before the rest of my brothers and my sister started to go away to college like that. So I just found that super fascinating. So much later, Rob, you taught in the first grade and you shared that even then you were beginning to rethink what school could be. So first year teaching is typically a time when you just try to survive. So what <laughs> got you thinking outside of the survival box in the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I was also trying to survive. <laughs> right. that, was, that was a good a good portion of those those early years of teaching. Yeah, for me, you know, there were a lot of things that I was really struck by, or lots of kind of moments that that pushed my thinking along the way. You know, so, some of them came very early. I remember the first October of teaching first grade. You know, I I was kind of making my plans. My mother called me from across the country and said, like, what are you going to do for Halloween? What crafts are you going to do? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we have time for that. We've got a lot of like, you know, math to learn and other things. <laughs> and she really sat me down. I was like, you give those kids memories. <laughs> and that, I think, reshaped my thinking around. I was so focused on trying to just figure out how to teach the content that mattered most. And I think I did not remember just how much of education is about you know, creating these kind of mm -hmm. lifelong memories, these experiences that are about exposure and joy. And so I think that that was a big part. I think I, I was very lucky to teach at a school that spent, you know, a lot of time as a staff learning about culturally responsive teaching, mm -hmm. which created a, a huge set of experiences for me to be able to just reflect on you know, my own educational experience and what identities were affirmed in that, what I was, you know, consciously and subconsciously projecting back onto my classroom. Mm. And so, you know, I think that really pushed my thinking on, mm -hmm. you know, what is some of the kind of core design of learning and what is it sending in terms of implicit and explicit messages to kids? What, what's that? Invisible curriculum. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, mm -hmm. you know, lots just left and right in those early years mm -hmm. of teaching was having my mind challenged about yeah, mm. what school could be. I love that your mom, you know, really was one of those, as you call it, anchor points there. She's like, you got to create oh, yeah. <laughs> memories, you know? And that's a really neat way. I actually haven't heard it said that way, that part of being a teacher in with a bunch of students is about creating memories. And what are the yeah. things that you do? That's very, very cool. So kind of along the same lines, you also shared that you moved at some point to Argentina and Botswana and that immersions and those cultures shook up your ideas of what you thought to be true. So in what ways did mm. that happen? Mm. So I went to both of those places during my undergrad. So I actually did that before I started teaching. Mm. And again, kind of many aha moments. I remember being in Argentina. I took a class at the University of Buenos Aires there that was focused on human rights. And mm. in one of the classes kind of early on, they did a whole kind of analysis about 9-11 and, you know, thinking about whether that was a government-led initiative or not. And I mean, you know, my mind is absolutely <laughs> spinning, being like, what are you talking about? This is like a bizarre conspiracy theory to be entertaining here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had coffee with some of the students afterwards and remembering that, like, that kind of stuff happened there, <laughs> like, in a very recent past, that that was part of the kind of lived experience and I think, you know, that's one of many, many ways in which, you know, that was my first time kind of living abroad for that long. Just understanding, again, the biases and schemas that you kind of bring from your lived experience and the way that being able to be exposed to, to many different places and different cultures, I think, stretched my sense of, of empathy and ability mm -hmm. to kind of see things from many more angles. Mm -hmm. And then in Botswana, I went to go 
uh, work at the government's ombudsman's office and then studied kind of global health questions and challenges. Mm. And probably my biggest you know pivot that came out of that time was I got a little disenchanted from global health work, which was my plan to be my career. I planned to mm. go get a master's in public health. Mm. And yeah, I think there was a lot of what I saw in terms of kind of other countries coming in and really shaping the health system and having slightly uncomfortable influence over, you know, local customs and practices. And I just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have much interest in that. Or mm. at least I, I think I wanted pause from it. And so when I came back and had the opportunity to kind of teach in a context where I could, you know, my own kind of home country and my own kind of more proximate way. That was me and a group of kids and a group of families. That mm. felt just really alluring. So in many mm. ways, I think that set the stage for what was supposed to be a detour into education and has since become, right. you know, what I'll do forever. Wow, that's awesome. What an awesome story. So, Rob, before we get into Transcend and the Inspiration Project and Lemon Battery, every once in a while, I love to do what I call lightning rounds with guests. So mm. these are short burst questions based on information that you've already shared with me. And you provide brief responses that get to what the what the French call the précis of the thing, preciseness, you know. So hopefully our listeners can you know, come away with sparks of ideas that they can try in the near term or just be inspired. So here goes, okay? So there's a whole series okay. of them here and then we'll take our first break. So first one is, how are you supporting the design of a parent advocacy group in the city of St. Louis? Like, what's that all about? <laughs> I was introduced to an incredible woman and team there who has been working to really fight for better options for schools, for their kids, for all kids in St. Louis, had started to begin to do a series of kind of fellowships for parents to start to build kind of organizing skills and skills to advocate. And so over the last six months or so, I've been helping them to design that fellowship and mm -hmm. actually just wrapped the first round of it. Last week, they had their graduation. And so, yeah, I've been behind the scenes design partner for this really incredible and just courageous uh, leaders down in St. Louis to to convene and empower families. Wow, you know, we have to we have to stay on the lightning round here thing. Yeah. But I, we could do a whole podcast just about this subject. Yeah. And you know, I ended up really going down some rabbit holes as a result of seeing this and what you shared with me because there are just so many nuances to this, but we can't be distracted by that. Yeah, Bridge, Bridge to Hope is the organization. So your listeners, feel free to learn more about oh. them. They're, they're pretty incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So you are running an educator professional learning community focused on equipping families with literacy practices. So mm. paint a picture <laughs> about that for us. Yeah. Also, this happens to be in St. Louis, kind of as a coincidence, but the team had been focused on how do we dramatically accelerate early literacy in St. Louis. Like in many places, they're looking at, you know, single digit, double digit proficiency levels at this point. And right. so a lot of the investments of this organization I've been working with have been obviously at the school level, supporting teachers, supporting schools to adopt good curriculum. Mm -hmm. But what they kept hearing is, you know, families are 
obviously deeply invested in that as well, but actually pretty rarely are equipped with the kind of science of reading and the like techniques that really make a difference for early literacy. And so, you know, what they default to is what I think most people default to, which is they they read at night and might do flashcards and, and things like that, which are all great. But there's actually a lot of really sound science and, and practice around literacy that, you know, sits in a pretty wonky place right now. And so the design challenge that we tried to think about is how do we kind of translate that and how do we set parents up with the knowledge that kind of the best literacy teachers are developing and honing and figure out what is the stuff they could be doing outside of school that also accelerates their mm-hmm. kids' learning. And so I've been working with a group of teachers to design and, and prototype new ways to, to think about that. Wow, that's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Okay, so you are creating a community of philanthropy advisors, which sounds like you know a real exercise in connectivity. So what is this work? How are you going about doing that work? Yeah, Great questions. <laughs> we, you know, for, for those who are less familiar, philanthropy advisors play the role of supporting, you know, kind of high wealth individuals or foundations to help figure out their strategy for giving. So how do you make the biggest impact based on problems that you want to solve in the world and what we're learning about what moves the needle? And this group of people is incredibly diverse and, you know, come from all kinds of backgrounds. They come from doing those issues. They come from accounting. <laughs> they come from mm-hmm. other philanthropy. And so a lot of them actually, you know, work in silos and kind of have their own mini networks. And so the question that we were asking is, how do we build a community where that group of people can collaborate more intensely, more authentically as a way to better understand and kind of grow their own networks around issue areas so that when they're giving advice to whoever their clients are, they're kind of pulling from a wider breadth of knowledge and wisdom. And so Mm -hmm. we've spent the last couple months kind of testing out new ways to build some cohesion around a subset of this group of people. Mm. Yeah. So we're pretty early on that, but it's a it's an amazing group of thinkers. And so it's very, very exciting to be learning alongside them. Yeah, this was particularly interesting for me because I've actually been invited, and this will happen before this episode airs, to a meeting with a local funder, Hui, that as a result of a couple of events that I put on where I was trying to find the intersection between education and investing, there were some people who attended those and they've invited me to this conversation to, you know, start talking about philanthropy and education. And so in effect, it's almost the same thing, but Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just taking the first baby steps into it. And it's, it's just a fascinating moment. And I feel, you know, a little bit of the stress of trying to bring myself up to speed on all the things <laughs> that you're talking about, about the ways that philanthropy is changing, which it is for sure. And so yeah. that's that's just super exciting. It's a great example where, you know, you clearly bring such kind of expertise and exposure that's so valuable. And if you can think about exponentially magnifying that by having you in community with more people that are doing that in the way that you do through your podcast, you know, that just makes the insights even richer and deeper. And so that's the the same kind of insight and bet that we're, we're hoping for. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, last one before we do our first break. So Rob, what does it mean to design a career day for the soul? Like, what does this look like and sound like and feel like? Yeah, so there's a great team based out of New York, led by Larnell Vickers, who has been doing some really inspiring work around talent and career coaching and helping people find the kind of jobs that are both going to, you know, enhance their career, but also, you know, bring out new parts of themselves and feel 
deeply fulfilled. So they've been doing that for a while, including testing out some kind of virtual career day for the soul events that they had been doing. And so over the last couple of months, they brought me in to be part of a design team to help figure out the first in-person versions of that. And so the spirit of it is to say, you know, this is always true, but especially right, you know, after the last couple of years, mm. people have been really grappling with, you know, what are my new values both in life and in work? And what do I want to be true about where I spend my time and energy? And it is more than, you know, what's giving me the right paycheck or how do I get the next promotion? Those things also matter. Mm-hmm. But people are asking me questions about how do I find places that align to my values and how do I mm-hmm. kind of balance the tensions between being my authentic self and being in a place that welcomes that. And so we wanted to create space and experience that would help people really think about those questions in community with other people who are thinking about those questions and then kind of equip themselves with some of the concrete skills to actually go act on that, whether that's having an uncomfortable conversation with your boss about it, or whether it's preparing your LinkedIn profile to match those values that as you look for your next thing, and people are ready. Mm -hmm. And so that's the career day for the soul um, experience that we have been kind of building and testing over the last couple Mm -hmm. months. You know, what's really neat, Rob, is that over the last couple of years during the pandemic, my wife is the publisher of a business magazine here in Honolulu. And I've also been working at home as well. And then she, you know, during the lockdown and had to start working from home and it remained that way. And it's it's still the case to this day. And it meant that I had a front row seat to watching mm-hmm. her publish the magazine. And everything that you just described here really resonates because in some ways that's what she's been doing, but stretching it out over two years and having all these conversations with her employees about how life is changing for them and where do they want to work from and, you know, what does hybrid mean and how do you determine productivity in this new environment? So I just, I just love the fact that you're doing that. This whole lightning round has been very inspiring to me. (laughs) And so I'm sure our listeners will appreciate the things that you've described here. So, hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with Rob Strain, a former first grade teacher and current coach, designer, and strategist. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro, and like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. 
If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Everyone, we are back with Rob Strain, who was in on the ground floor during the development of TFA's reinvention lab, among many other things. So Rob, working chronologically, a big part of your life has been the Inspiration Project. And we could really spend an entire hour on this, but instead I'm going to condense it down to three questions and let our listeners explore the inspirationproject.org if they want to go deeper, okay? So first one is briefly, what is the field trips concept that is at the heart of the Inspiration Project? So the Inspiration Project was also born during COVID. I guess technically it was probably born many, many years before that. But a set of colleagues of mine who spent a bunch of time supporting schools and systems to kind of redesign their work had really built a practice around bringing people to provocative learning environments as a spark to what could be possible in their own context. And so we'd get people on planes and buses and take them to new cities and spend you know, days popping into schools and non-school spaces and things that were way outside of education, all as fodder to really think about you know, what is learning and what could it look like for you. And so that had been such a critical component of our work with schools. And then COVID hit and we couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> right. And we couldn't experience incredibly powerful feeling of just being in a place that's different than, than what you've come to know. And so we, in a pretty experimental way at the start, we're like, well, let's see if we can do this virtually and let's see what that would look like. And so we launched the Inspiration Project and these field trips which are kind of, they started as relatively long experiences. They've shortened over time. Mm-hmm. But virtual chances to go get a window into what other, again, schools and, and learning environments are doing. And so they're kind of organized around a theme like teacher sustainability or nature mm-hmm. and learning and give you a chance to kind of choose a couple of guests to go deep with and get a sense of, What does it look like to go to their school or how do they think about that theme and what do their students think about it? Mm. All is an intention of of leaving people with, again, some sparks and some ideas that they can incorporate or, you know, file away for when they need it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's what the, the field trips have begun. Wow. Absolutely love that. So I had a very hard time, Rob, choosing between future field trips titled Each Other, Disability, Youth, The Past, the world and libraries and museums. But after mm-hmm. exploring all of them, I decided I wanted to ask about youth. So if mm. I am a fly on the wall of the entire process of design to field trip to reflection, what will I see and hear and feel? Well, this one is, you know, I, I guess maybe to start all the way from the beginning, which is when we decide on the themes <laughs> that, that led to youth. Mm-hmm. We start by kind of triangulating things that we're hearing from educators, things that people are struggling with or interested in. We kind of pay attention to our own curiosities, like where are things that we want to do some some more thinking about. And then we make a really long list of possible themes. Um, and we send up kind of out to the community of people who've come to, to help us prioritize. And so youth and, and youth leadership was certainly one of the top things that people were excited to mm-hmm. interrogate and see how our places really empowering young people to take charge of their learning or change their community. So that was the kind of phase one was deciding that 
we would do that theme. Mm-hmm. Phase two, which is a little different in this case, is you know, given the the point of this was how do we uplift the voices and kind of power of young people, we wanted the session to be designed and led with young people. <laughs> so we kind of stretched beyond our normal adult design crew who who plans these sessions and found an incredible woman named AJ who has done a lot of youth leadership herself, just wrapped up college and is kind of a junior CEO role at a <laughs> youth empowerment organization and called mm-hmm. Grip Tape. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we engaged with her to help kind of imagine, you know, what kind of guests do we want to highlight? What do we want? What questions do we want to ask people to get their wheels turning about this issue? And from there, you know, started to really design, you know, an experience that's going to be about two hours that, you know, selects there are three, there might end up being four um, organizations that we're going to be spotlighting and a set of provocations that people will get in the mail ahead of time that mm. include uh, some student arts that we've commissioned that mm. relates to the theme, wow. a set of, of questions that come from the book, Teaching as a Subversive Act, that mm. are questions that participants can ask young people in their lives coming into the session. And so they'll get that, think about that, do some of that, and then come into the experience, have some kind of meaning making about that that prep experience, and then dive into two of three of these kind of 30-minute breakouts with some of these organizations that are doing mm-hmm. some some kind of rad stuff around youth empowerment. Um, so yeah, that's a little both like the, the planning behind the scenes, but then what it will look like when you come. Mm, wow. And just as a side tangent here, because I suspect that our listeners might be really sparked in this moment. How do people find out more about this? You can just let them know where to go at this point. Yeah, you can just head to the inspirationproject.org and you'll see all of the upcoming sessions and all of them are available to join, including this youth one is December 8th. That's awesome. Okay, so final question about the Inspiration Project. I I very much want to join your inspired leader cohort, Rob, Mm -hmm. which is another element of the Inspiration Project. So you know, and I know that words matter. And as you know, Rob, meaning what you are calling this cohort suggests its participants are already inspired, which I really picked up on here. Mm -hmm. And so how will you and your team shape that inspiration that already exists already and grow it and strengthen it and nurture it as this cohort comes together and and moves forward? I love that. Uh, I'm noticing quick context on where this came from. We've done three years of these field trip series and they've always been meant to you know be really powerful but really bite-sized kind of tastes of inspiration that leaders can kind of come in and out of you can join one you can join all of them yeah and so the beauty of that is it's really inclusive and you can kind of get what you need out of it the downside of that is there's so much learning to be had by the other people who are in that experience with you. And I wouldn't say that we've maximized that because they change all the time. And, and so one of the reasons we wanted to do the cohort was to really think about how do we take this practice that's been really powerful for people and then enhance it in a couple ways. One of which is continuity of a small group of people who mm-hmm. are, are working together over time. And then the second is, you know, we've the little bits of this in the field trip series where we definitely bring in kind of non-school learning experiences, but the inspired leader cohort is going to go way far out of the field of education. And so it's people who are education leaders who are thinking about, you know, big questions and what school can be and what their role is in that and saying like, what are the big questions that are already coming up in your life or the big curiosities that you're holding with you? And then how do we look 
like Wea fields to themes like ceramics and trash art and people who are creating at-home health palliative care? And what can we learn from places that are doing really bold or provocative things outside of education? And how do we practice making connections of that into our own world? Mm-hmm. So to your original question of, you know, yeah, everyone who's coming into this cohort is is incredible and passionate and you know, asking bold and interesting questions. And our hope and our goal through the cohort is that both by connecting them to each other and by building a new habit of, of honestly, it's, you know, deep conceptual thinking and new rituals that say, how do I actually get more inspiration from a wider set of things in a more generative way? Mm-hmm. How will that enhance the way that I'm already reflecting on and advancing my own leadership? And so that's the the big kind of hypothesis that we're going to test during the cohort and it's our first go at it. So we're very excited to see see what comes. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. And we get to talk about it today. That's very, yeah. very cool. <laughs> very, very cool. So Rob, I'm going to shift gears just slightly. You worked as a partner to Transcend, which came on my radar screen quite a while back when I did an episode with a teacher in very rural Minnesota who had been working with Transcend and with Fielding International. Her name is Janelle uh, Field. And that really, that was my first kind of non-Hawaii episode. And it really opened my eyes to some of the remarkable kind of connections of organizations or collaboratives of organizations that were working together on behalf of teachers. So Transcend's mission is to support communities to create and spread extraordinary, equitable learning environments. So I have two questions about your time with Transcend. So you coach school systems working to transform their approach to education. And the word I locked in on is approach. So at what school could be, we talk about small steps leading to big change. So Mm -hmm. in in what ways has your time with Transcend and even the Reinvention Lab helped you gain insights into, quote unquote, the best approach? Like, that's just Mm -hmm. a fascinating area for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about time at Transcend. It was very formative for me. And um, for folks who are not familiar with their work, I highly recommend checking out Transcend Education. Org, I think. Mm-hmm. So your question about the approach, I mean, one of the things I loved most about, you know, my time at Transcend that I think I've carried with me beyond is, you know, we really were kind of model agnostic. And I think that's not, it's not completely unheard of in education, but it's a little rare in this like ecosystem right. of a mm-hmm. lot of people have approaches that they've really refined and they're trying to train people to take their version of personalized learning or their version of project-based learning. Right. And I think that's really powerful. There's no diss on that. But I think what Transcend's bet was, was to say, how do we help communities take a really kind of organic and authentic process that's going to make sense for their community to define what school needs to be for them and then move their way to that future Mm -hmm. without kind of tipping the scales on that? And so, you know, to your question of approach, I'd say there was a couple things that kind of came into focus as being key ingredients to that, that I I still think a lot about as, as schools kind of communities begin a a design process like this. I think the first is, you know, 
having a rich, rigorous conversation about what school's for. <laughs> and I, I think that seems a little silly, but I think what we found is as we get into this conversation where we you know, get families and teachers having a collective conversation about what do you want for you know, your kids? What is the world going to look like in 20 years? What are the skills that they really need? You know, what are the tensions in that? That it creates a really powerful set of both aha moments for people around where the kind of mismatch of what we just kind of repeat as school mm-hmm. is to these things that we say we really want them to be equipped with and, and to experience. And so having that North Star that is shared amongst all of these stakeholders, I think is kind of maybe step one in an important way. And I, I say step one, knowing that it's a conversation that actually keeps happening for years. I think I don't, yeah. I don't think it's a check, check mark and then move on um, kind of experience. So that's one. I think the other two that maybe I'd highlight is something we just talked about the inspiration project, which is really letting yourself get out of your own context. And so whether that looks like, you know, literally getting on a bus and going to new cities and seeing what other schools look like that, really push your thinking or whether it is seeing in your own community different institutions and leaders that can can challenge you know, what's been going on. But really saying, how do I look a field to get ideas that challenge us? And I think especially that's important in school because all of us are so kind of indoctrinated <laughs> into mm. what school mm-hmm. usually looks like. We went to schools that look a lot like what our parents went to schools at, what yep. our kids look go to. Right. And so not having a chance to push yourself out of that, I think makes it very likely that you'll just repeat it. Mm. And then the third thing I'd say is really orienting towards piloting an iteration. And I think this is a thing that often you see in education initiatives, you know, a bunch of people create a plan and a strategy and they think about best practice. And then they say like, all right, so this is our, we're all going to do it. We're all going to launch this big initiative and everyone Mm -hmm. get on board. And you see all the very predictable things where, you know, some people are invested in it. It doesn't work in a certain context. The kinks emerge and everyone unravels it or doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so our orientation to saying like, have some big ideas, have some bold ideas, and then find small places to be prototyping them and to Mm. see what works and what sticks, then make it better and then bring in the next wave of people to help iterate on it as well. But take a real, both like, you know, slow and steady approach to trying out these new ideas that shrinks the risk a little bit, but more importantly, creates a culture of, of learning and of really asking yourself, like, is this accomplishing what we said it should how can it be better? And like, what's next? And just continuing to ask yourself that question over and over again mm-hmm. as you kind of scale out new ideas. Wow. So those are some of the, I'd say, approaches that I think of. You know, there's lots of other things that obviously are, are part of that process. But I think those are, in, in my perspective, I think the key things that... I, I keep hammering home. Mm. This is what I heard from Janelle Field when I did the episode with her. She, again, in rural Minnesota, was that was the first step that they took was to, you know, it's very much like empathy and design thinking. They did a whole series of conversations with their community mm-hmm. and with multiple schools and all the stakeholders, parents, students, community members, business members, everybody. And, and the information that they came out with was just extraordinary. And one of the things that was really key in that conversation, Rob, was that students didn't feel engaged in school and that was a shock to the system to find that out but then they were like okay we're gonna roll up our sleeves and get to work and figure out how to how to you know create learning spaces where kids do feel engaged and so on right so that's awesome and so one more question you know related to transcend before we do our second break there, there are so many conversations, Rob, happening in education, which I'm really encouraged about, by the way, around coaching. 
And so my question to you is, what is the role of the coach? And I realize this is kind of a big question, but what, what is the role of the coach in, in your mind? Like specifically, in what ways can coaching be integral to helping schools meet the challenges of the 21st century, including a pandemic? Oh, such a good question. I will I will answer what I think the role of me as a coach has been yeah. <laughs> and what I try to channel. Yeah. Um, I don't want to, a lot of people think really, really deeply expansively about coaching as a methodology that I don't want to be too broad in what I think coaching is for. Right. In my context with, you know, helping people do innovation work or do school design work, I think there's a couple things that I, I can really offer as a coach who, you know, isn't part of the context that is, you know, designing isn't part of that community per se. And I think, you know, they are as follows. One, I think that I can offer fresh eyes <laughs> to what to what they're mm-hmm. doing. I think, again, all of us, especially, you know, educators in schools, you know, system leaders, you are so immersed in what you're doing. There are things that are going a million miles a minute. You are, you know, are battling a whole bunch of different priorities to do what you're trying to do. That it can just be easy to become myopic. And again, that's no ding. It's just the context <laughs> that people are in. Right. So I think having people who are not mired down in that many details come in and be able to say, like, here's what I noticed, or here's what I see, or ask you questions that are going to help you see some things that maybe you have been paying attention to, but just haven't been as loud for you. So one of them, I think, is just kind of fresh eyes. Mm. Another, I do think, is you know especially with school design work, I think there are some like practical skills that are just helpful to kind of equip people with. And I think that's different than some methods of coaching. You know, you really are being more kind of Socratic in your in your approach. Mm-hmm. But I think in here, you know, this is some a place where I think a lot of folks have benefited from saying like, how do you get a good empathy interview when you're talking mm. to a student? Like, right. what are the right questions to ask? Once you have all this data, how do you find themes in yeah. that? Or like, you're going to build a pilot. How do you know what data to collect that's not so cumbersome that you spend all your time gathering data? And so I do think there's just like some you know design focus, change management focus skills that I think are helpful. And I'd say the third one is really about being kind of responsive and like a... I think of it a lot as a metaphor of like a running buddy of someone who mm-hmm. is going to like, you know, show up outside your house at 6 a.m. because that's when you said you guys were going to go running and then is going to like give you the high five halfway through <laughs> the race and right. someone to be able to like this. So it's so hard to get new ideas in any context, but especially in education off the ground. And it will be hard and things will not go well. Um, and so to have someone who's walking alongside you in that process who can kind of keep grounding you and where you are in the process and the big picture and celebrate the wins for you and help you make meaning Mm -hmm. of what the struggles are, I think can be a really kind of critical just like role to keeping momentum going, especially when so much of it does feel either ambiguous or like an uphill climb. Mm -hmm. You know, Rob, back in my younger days, I I was a distance runner. And I remember very clearly this moment, I used to run with this one guy who was actually, he was a pretty awesome, like state champion type runner, but he lived just down the street from me. So we would run together and he was running behind me. And I remember one day we were kind of cruising along and he said, you're carrying your arms too high. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) you know. And it was just this moment of just like, okay, I'm going to let my arms down a little bit. All of a sudden I felt this kind of energy come into me and I was realizing, you know, that that simple observation on his part 
revealed to me that I was overspending energy just by keeping my arms up tight above, right? And I, I love yeah. that you're what you're describing here is just some very practical things that are part of coaching, that are part of your experience of coaching, that people actually it's it's worth it to spend that time and figuring out what those practical things are so you yeah. can be a better coach. That's awesome. And I'll also tell our listeners before we go to break that if you get a chance, just Google The New Yorker and coaching. There's a terrific article. I think it was published back in 2011 or 2012, I think. And it was written by a surgeon who invited a coach in to his life. And then it's a you know New Yorker, an extended article, but it goes into depth about how coaching is applicable in the teaching context as well. So uh, there you go. I'm going to read it. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, really good. <laughs> so hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Rob Strain. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Rob Strain, who is about to launch Lemon Battery, a consulting service based in the Bay Area. So Rob, you're about to launch a project, which is a rebranding of your consulting service, and it's gonna be called Lemon Battery. And at your not yet publicly live Lemon Battery website, I read, which you gave me access to, thank you, it went down a rabbit <laughs> hole. There's, here's what I read at your website. There's a wicked problem standing in your way. It's ambiguous, it's complex, it's solvable. So I'm going to quote a line on your site's, an additional line on your site's homepage. Everyone needs a thought partner with good energy. And so I have to say, Rob, these words put huge fuel in my tank. So let's have some fun and briefly tap, tackle a couple wicked problems that have been on my mind for a while now. So let's right. say certain educators and campus leaders do all this work to design and build a shift we will call competency-based or mastery-based teaching and learning. And it's an obvious move away from subject seat time and standardized assessments and towards mastery of skills and knowledge. The wicked problem is that when it was rolled out, parents got out their pitchforks and angrily went to war against this concept. So I need a thought partner here with good energy, Rob. So you, to wonder with me, now what? I love that. I mean, I think I'll I'll start with what I normally start with when I have a big project, which is asking questions. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking about like what where where do we need more information? Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, I'm I'm guessing this is a, a wicked problem that you see many times, but maybe yeah. I'll ask you to contextualize it for a specific place that you're thinking through. 
what was the role that parents played along the way in this mm. in this process? Well, I think, you know, it's one of the problems that anybody or any group of people trying to reimagine education run into, which is that I think we we set aside the parents or we or we don't include them in what you were talking about earlier before the break, which is the empathy interviews. And yeah. that the parents in this case have been and and as you mentioned again before, you know, it's like I had the education that my parents had and my parents had the education that their parents had and it all looked rather successful. And in this case, it's, you know, typically in a private school or independent school context or any public school that's really focused on college admissions, right, and on getting kids into college. And so all of a sudden there's this shock to the system. It's like, wait, mm -hmm. is this competency-based or mastery-based approach going to serve my child in the way that the system has served me and, you know, my parents as well and their parents, you know, that's the situation. Yeah. 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 And I hear two things in that, you know, one is quite literally parents might just be not in the loop. <laughs> like they yeah. might not have been kind of along along the road or in the different kind of phases of this process, which means they quite literally don't know kind of what's going on or, or why. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I hear in what you're saying is, you know, to make a big change that not just like, you know, impacts what their kid is experiencing, but really some kind of belief systems that people have held on to about what school looks like, you have to know why you need to change, right? Like the the stakes of changing have to feel greater than the risks of changing. Mm. And what I'm hearing you say is that it, you know, potentially that step was skipped, right? Like what was wrong with what we were doing before? It seemed to be working fine. Right. And so what does it look like to to create a kind of sense of urgency around this the shift and why it ultimately is better? Mm. That that's some of what I'm noticing or wondering as you're kind of describing the situation. And I, you know, we don't we don't need to get into kind of all of this, but the other questions I think I'd ask a team that was experiencing this challenge would be like, why did you change? <laughs> you know, like what was the mm. like obviously there was that's a lot of work to do to to create a competency-based approach. It is. You know, so so mm. what what was the impetus and how as a group of staff who kind of got on board on this and, and did all that hard work, what animated you to to want to do that? Mm. And you know, what signals pointed you in that direction? And then, you know, kind of lastly, my questions would be, you know, I think all of those, my guess, will point to the same place that you just described, which is like, okay, we didn't walk down this road together as a community. We have pockets of people who got a sense of of why we're doing it. Some of us have seen the the impact and progress and, and the bright spots of what it's looked like and some of us haven't. And so to me, the real, you know, wicked problem that I'm hearing and what you're saying is like, how do we all get back on the same page mm -hmm. <laughs> about mm -hmm. what we're trying to do? And some of that, you know, goes back to earlier in our conversation, the kind of stuff we talked about in the transcend process, which is like, we probably need to do some work to start having the conversation about like, well, what is school for? What does a prepared kid look like these days? Mm -hmm. Given that, what is the, you know, pain points of our current model and realizing that in a way that maybe is different now than it was when, you know, your grandparents went to school, et cetera. Right. And then therefore, what is this new approach that we're taking that we can really see and feel and understand to then be able to be invested in? And in this case, it's not starting from the beginning. It's right. starting from like this thing already happened. So it doesn't mean you still don't need to go back and do all of that work uh, alongside families and students and, and educators. But it also means there's probably some reparative work <laughs> to be done mm -hmm. and some you know acknowledging of like, yeah, that makes sense that you're having this reaction and are bad on <laughs> not taking these steps along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but the kind of normal work that you need to do to have a restorative experience mm -hmm. when 
that kind of trust has been kind of breached in a community. Wow, that's so amazing, Rob. And I just picture me sitting in the hot seat with my head in my hands, you know, and I'm just wondering, which is what you addressed just a second ago. It's like, do I just pitch the whole thing at this point? Is it hopeless? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and what you're saying is it is actually possible when you miss a step, you've made a mistake, fail forward, that you can go back and rebuild the process again if you recognize, you know, what you missed along the way, which is, you know, it, it's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. And I would say, you know, two two things are true. One is every you always everyone misses a step at some point. Like there's you're, there's no way you're yeah. going to do a big gnarly change process and not make mistakes. And so, getting pretty comfortable with being able to name and own that and move move forward is absolutely a part of the leadership required to do you know change of any kind. The second thing that I think is also true is as you go back through that process you can't posture yourself as just like selling people on this thing that you've come to, right? Mm. Like part of the original design process is to really listen to to people and to listen to families. And there might be things that you're going to hear as you go through that process that will make you shift this approach that you've taken and will help you kind of make it more responsive to the, the kids and the families that you're serving. And so figuring out how do you, you know, look back and, and kind of retrace those steps with a sense of openness and a sense of curiosity that also potentially was, it, it wasn't just not maybe strategic <laughs> to, to miss that step. There are probably real insights that you missed along the way as well. Mm. So I, parents will sniff out pretty quickly <laughs> if you're doing it just, just to sell them on something that you've already come to and right. aren't actually listening. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So Rob, because this was so much fun, I want to do a second one. Um, <laughs> in the past, and this is like completely, you know, different direction. In the past few months, I have become obsessed with what I call a golden ticket concept in education transformation. It's the idea of a solutionary, in air quotes here, which was conceived by the remarkable Zoe Weil at the um, Institute for Humane Education. So the definition of a solutionary, Rob, is a person who identifies inhumane, unsustainable and unjust systems, and then develop solutions that are healthy and equitable for people, animals, and the environment. So here's my wicked problem. I am the superintendent of a school district, and I feel the urgent need to start educating generations of solutionaries. And the need feels mm -hmm. so urgent, I can't sleep at night. So mm -hmm. how do we start into something like this? You just described my ideal person to work with. Someone who is, <laughs> is unfortunately probably losing sleep losing because sleep. they are, yeah, yeah, because they are on to a, a question or an opportunity that that's keeping them up at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I won't belabor this, but I I always would start with questions. You know, I'd want to know like why, like why is that so compelling to you? Like, how do you come to understand that that matters? kind of really tap into like something is lighting this person up about this opportunity that mm -hmm. I want to really understand that. But assuming we've done, we've done that, I think mm -hmm. what I'm hearing your question is like, what's the process we now take? We are clear on the kind yeah. of leadership that we want to take uh, or we want to nurture in, in our young people. What does it look like to develop that? And so, you know, to, 
I will also not repeat the steps that I think it to, I would say, which is like a superintendent should not go on a loan journey on this one. Yes. Um, if they are really seeing the motivation for this idea, the question is like, great, who else are you talking to about this first? I think phase one is like, build your team mm-hmm. who, who wants to take on this design question with you. Mm-hmm. And that team needs to represent both perspectives that you don't have, but also, you know, strategically think about who needs to be part of this across the system if it ultimately is going to get incorporated into the system that you're leading. So you're looking at the people who run curriculum, you're looking at parents, you're looking at students, you're looking at teachers, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about who is a group of people who you want to go on this journey with over some period of time to kind of answer this big gnarly question that you've asked. So mm-hmm. step one, build your team. Mm-hmm. Step two is go get more information. And that probably includes... Again, talking to families about, you know, what does this solutionary idea mean to you? What does that look like? What if that resonates? But then what I love about the kind of framing of this is there are people who probably meet that profile out in their community mm, who are solutionaries, yes. right? And go go spend a ton of time with those people and mm. really ask them mm-hmm. like how you know, the question to me is, you know, if you have a profile, you have a what. Then the question is like, well, how? How do people become that way? Yeah. Um, and so I'd spend a ton of time with your, you know, design team that you formed, getting information about that, looking to potentially there's probably some like, you know, book research <laughs> to engage in around the you know, character development and mm-hmm. how people think about sustainability and how other cultures have thought about that. But also just spend a ton of time with people who meet that profile and say, like, how does this show up in your life? Where do you think you learned that? Like, what about school helped you do that? What what actually dampened that spirit for you? Mm. And use that to get a bunch of ideas. And then I'd say all of that is going to lead you to some set of probably principles that emerge from that research. So some kind of touchstones that you know you might learn that uh, for all of these people you interviewed, they had some crucible moment in their life where they saw a big pro- injustice and people encouraged them to say like, well, what are you going to do about it? Like that was like, they all had some version of that moment. Hmm. And so you guys, you know, decide you want to riff off of that principle and say, what if every student in our system had a moment where they had that kind of permission, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that kind of like nudge to do it and design a learning experience around that. That's one example of you might go like five different directions from the principles that you learn. But mm-hmm. once you have a handful of these kind of ideas, test it. <laughs> You'd say like, let's get a group of 10 kids from the high school mm. and try a riff on what this experience might really look like to build the, you know, a solutionary mindset or a solutionary skill set. And then you probably do that 10 to 12 rounds of just like do it with 10 kids. See if you can then do it with elementary kids. Then you'd see, can you do it with the whole and, and kind of scale and learn as you go. But mm. there'd be something in that phase of like build your team, get inspired and get more information, distill the insights that should guide your ultimate solutions, build some of those, <laughs> test them over time, mm. and then you know kind of rinse and repeat as needed to, to feel like you've got some real change going on. Wow, this is so amazing. I feel like, Rob, I'm going to get my first night of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) All of a sudden. But but in all all seriousness, this whole kind of scenario that you've been talking about was born out of some concerns I'm starting to have as we see academy models proliferating Mm. across the country. And they're certainly where I'm home-based here in Hawaii. They're now, you know, growing exponentially. I think there's now, out of all of our high schools, like 27 of them have academy models. And what worries me, and this is where this all came from, is that we're just channeling kids directly into jobs. Mm -hmm. But where's the purpose? Where's the opportunity to serve your community? Where's the opportunity to shape the world 
if you're if the academy is just channeling you in that direction. And so I started thinking as I was prepping for today's conversation about how that solutionary concept can be part of the academy model um, mm-hmm. and it gives kids an opportunity. And so that's really neat the way that you've laid that out. And so we'll see what our listeners take away from yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah, I think your your hunch there is really interesting to me to say, you know, it's probably there's probably a way to make that a yes and, right? To yes. say, mm-hmm. you know, I think about, you know, my story and what we're talking about in terms of, you know, I moved to Botswana to get expertise in global health and spent some real time kind of building my skill set, thinking that's where I was going to go. And I didn't end up spending any time in that career <laughs> really at all. But there's this whole transferable skill set and knowledge that I formed in it as well. Right. So if you're building academies around, you know, engineering or government or whatever you want to build your academy around, what are these kind of transcendent skills and orientations that we want to under underpin that? Um, so yeah, you're getting some hard skills and some things that are really helpful and you very well might go down that path. But yeah. what does it look like to ensure that, you know, all the data tells us that kids graduating today are going to have many, many more careers than any generation before them. And so really taking seriously what's the most transferable part of that and what's going to help support them to pivot and pivot and pivot. And what I hear you saying is, is I think, one version of that, which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So Rob, one more question before we finish this awesome conversation today. So at your Lemon Battery website, you have posted some testimonials, which makes sense Mm. given you're offering a service, right? So (laughs) one reads, and I'll quote, I'll never hire another strategist. He's just that good. So I know that you walk on the humble side of the street, but for a minute, I would love to explore how your life's journey resulted in Brittany Erickson, founder of Franklin Street Studio, saying this lovely thing about you. Like, what are some of the waypoints in your life, especially working in the field of education, that ultimately led her to state this testimonial? Oh, that's a good question. And shout out, Brittany. Thank you for, for those words. <laughs> you are, you've diagnosed me correctly, Josh, that this is a, a deeply uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so the question is like, what what led me to being able to, you know, get that testimonial around strategy? I think, you know, when I think about what I try to bring to a strategy project that might might be unique, I think there's a couple things. I think one is that, I approach a problem with a ton of curiosity Mm. and I try to bring a huge breadth of inputs into that question. And so, you know, I'd say I'm pretty voracious in, in, you know, the amount of podcasts I listen to and what I read and the random people I follow who like push my thinking inside of education, outside of education. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that comes from you know, having had some experiences both as a child where I think, you know, my kind of wandering curiosity was, you know, stoked and affirmed and supported in in meaningful ways. And I think that, you know, in my education career, you know, I've talked about some of them, but there were so many moments where I just felt like, you know, the aperture of the world just kept widening where Mm. I'd, you know, Mm -hmm. be teaching and then learn about critical race theory. And then I'd have a chance to see a school and totally reimagine, like, what does it mean to create belonging? And then, you know, I'd go to a tech boot camp (laughs) and be like, wow, this is totally changing my mind about what career readiness actually means. And so, you know, I get such a high off of that. Like it is to Mm. me to, you know, on the weekly have my world expanded and 
have my thinking pushed and challenges. Like I just I feel voracious in that way. And I do think that, you know, it seems slightly tangential to strategy work, which is about focus and about clarity. And yet I think that's a big part of what I, I, I try to bring is to say like there is a phase before that that lets you dream and lets you think really expansively about what's possible mm. that then actually helps you be precise about like of all of those of those directions and possibilities, what's going to be the first one you really want to take a swing at. Mm. So I think that's probably a, a big part of it. I do think the second thing I, I would not have maybe identified this for myself until I started getting all these testimonials because I finally was going to build a website. Mm -hmm. But I think people point to a skill that I have around synthesis about being able to Mm -hmm. take a bunch of inputs Mm -hmm. and try to create something that is clear and simple and and focused from all of that. And I, I will say I don't totally know where that comes from. I do think it's in some ways the byproduct of trying to get a lot of input over time is that a lot of input without synthesis or connections or conceptual like meaning making is just kind of like preparing for trivia. And so because I am constantly making those connections with outside the world, it's stretched a muscle in me to be able to say like, all right, well, how do those things relate to each other? Mm -hmm. If I were to take away like one lesson from that, what would that be? And I think the nature of of my work and working across so many contexts with so many different people and in so many different altitudes has just really helped me be able to say like, all right, how do you centralize? And I think as a coach or supporter of people trying to define strategy or trying to define vision, again, having that outside eye who's able to do that, I think can be mm. a bit of a breath of fresh air. That's awesome. So massive number of inputs and synthesis that comes from establishing connections. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's, again, I, I give most of the credit for all that to having just a lot of educational opportunities inside of schools, outside of schools yeah. that have let me become, you know, I think people are inherently really curious. Um, and I think I've been kind of lucky enough to have places that have affirmed that and, yeah. you know, stretched that and, and led to that skill. That's awesome. Rob Strain, thank you for being on the show today. You are an incredibly inspiring person, and I can't wait to get this episode out to our listeners. Thanks, Josh. It was quite an honor. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music and musical interludes come from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Friends, these are uncertain and challenging times. 
The headlines, especially around education, can be relentlessly negative. Please, bring kindness, compassion, innovation, creativity, and imagination into the world. We need a surplus of all of these right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and take care.